You know, it's been however many years of doing this show. It's been at least one whole year of using Zencaster to do it. You'd think I'd know what I was doing by now. You got to pivot, man. You got to pivot with the times. Clearly. You're doing very, you're doing very well. I, I certainly try. Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 273 of the Matinee Cast. It's a movie-loving podcast on my movie-loving website, matinee.ca. Your home for cinematic passion and perspective. Dear listener, I am not going to lie. I hate November. I really do. It sucks for me. It's too cold to be autumn. It's not cold enough to be winter. It's gray. It's wet. And... A lot of the crappy things that have happened to me in my life have happened in November. I, I don't know why. It just it just is. It's just it's like one last gasp of crap before we get into the holidays and get out of the year. So I'm glad that I'm I'm here tonight so that I can get one more episode out in November and move forward into December. I'm glad that you're here with me um, and that you're keeping me company as I get through this crappier time. It's not even a specially crappy time for me this year. I just have that taste in my mouth again as I remember stuff. And I'm certainly happy that today's guest is here. It sounds strange to say now, but a longtime friend, and not even just a friend of the show, but a longtime friend, somebody who I've known for years and years and years, and I can almost not remember not knowing him. It's been that long. We're, um, we're into decades now, man. I know, right? It's it's like, uh, I, you know, I, I, your your kid is graduating university this year, and I remember when he was, like, yeah. waist high. Yep. Yep. Oh, I, I kind of remember that, too. It happened yesterday, <laughs> I believe. Yeah. Uh, very much glad to be here as well, sir. That voice is Bob Turnbull, by the way. He was one time the proprietor of Eternal Sunshine of the Logical Mind. He's now just the bon vivant around town um, who does things like coercing us out into a bar and showing up on podcasts and spouting off pearls. Uh, we are all much, much better off for him being in our lives. Bob's here. How are you, Bob? You are setting that bar way too high for your public. Right? <laughs> um, I, public. I well. Yeah, you're public. Both I have well. Yeah. Um, I, I have a bit of a higher opinion of November, uh, mainly because it is my wife's birthday today. Um, so and November, you're I, here I, with me. Indeed. Uh, that's because she is very happy to watch a few of her shows that she's got all recorded. Um, so it, it is a win-win for both of us. So, you know, it's a good day. I don't want to say I'm questioning your priorities, but I think I'm questioning <laughs> your priorities. On episode 273, we will be discussing Belfast. We'll be flipping the record over to play the other side, and we will learn even more about Bob. This is Know Your Enemy. So when I say even more about Bob, I really mean it. Get comfy, folks. It's going to take a second, and I'll try to get through oh, it as man, quick you, as I can. You going to do it? You oh, yeah. Go through the whole thing? Here we go. Bob is an yeah. eight-time guest. The previous seven episodes went like so. We had a Hot Dogs episode in 2010. We learned the first movie he ever saw in a theater was Sleeping Beauty. The last film he'd seen was something called Fine. Totally fine. The worst film he's ever seen is something called Shark Attack Megalodon. The unseen classic or essential was Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Bob has seen it. The films he wished he made, plural, because Bob does that. 
were Airplane and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Bob returned on episode 32. We talked about Duncan Jones' source code. We learned the film he digs, but nobody else does is Ocean's 12. The film everybody else likes that he doesn't is True Romance. The last movie to make him cry was Dear Zachary. In the movie of his life, he'd be played by Anthony Edwards. And the film he was watching next was The Outlaw Josie Wales. Then there's episode 83, Upstream Color. We learn the film that made his love of film turn a corner is Raising Arizona. That movie's going to get mentioned a few more times, so take a drink, people. The first date movie with his wife was A Kiss Before Dying. His sick day movie is Magnolia. The last films to leave him speechless were, at any price, Cafe de Flore and Cold Dish. And his epitaph would be, so many social engagements, so little time from Raising Arizona. Then there's episode 130. We talked about a most violent year. We learned the film he really digs but never wants to see again is Morta End of History. The last film to genuinely freak him out were Juwan and Dear Zachary for varying reasons. The movies that always make him laugh are Anchorman, Airplane, and Racing Arizona. His favorite movie soundtrack is the pairing of Soul Kitchen and Only Human. And I never did get the movie you love, but nobody else has heard of. Then there's episode 244. We took things out of sequence and finally got to a sequence of questions that Bob had skipped answering for several years. This was just last year with um, Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things. We learned that when he goes to the theater, he likes to sit a few rows up on the aisle. If he could go on a date with any movie character, he would go on a date with Maggie Chung and Irma Vep. The dirtiest movies he's ever seen are in the realm of senses and cold fish. His favorite black and white movie is The Night of the Hunter. And the movie he likes but nobody would expect him to like is the aristocrats then we go back in time again and go to episode 138 we talked about chloe jaws the rider we learned that in home or in the theater his movie snack of choice is some sort of diet cola any brand the movie world he'd most like to spend a day in were real genius animal house where everybody wants some if he wants to go back to college or gentle breeze or in a village only yesterday if he wanted to go to japan the good movie scene in a bad film is the farmhouse shootout in Manhunt or the dance sequences in Sweet Charity. The most violent movie he's ever seen is The World of Kamako, and a movie monologue he wishes he could deliver is the mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore speech from Network. All right, last one. Episode 222, we talked about high life. We learned if Bob had met a person who's never seen a movie before, he would show them 12 Angry Men. The movie that best embodies his personality is Afterlife, Corrieta again. The movie that he hated on first watch but eventually grew to enjoy is Fanny and Alexander. A remake or adaptation which is better than its source material is Ocean's Eleven. And if he could bring any artist back to life from the dead, who and why? Agnes Varda, just to make more Agnes Varda movies. So it is time for the very seldom heard round eight. Mr. Turnbull, please stop me from talking. If you could (laughs) sit down to any cinematic meal, what would you choose? Uh, before I launch into that, the answer to the one question you can find the answer to, the uh, movie I love that nobody else has heard of, was a 2004 Spanish movie called Only Human. That is correct, that, right. You know, there was the thought of making the humorous answer of the dinner the dinner or the meal at the fridge in nine and a half weeks, but really kind of gross. So well, let's skip over that one. Uh, Soul <laughs> Kitchen, which was uh, mentioned before, great music. There's some great food in there, too. It's, it's supposed to be kind of... Uh, basic food but they make it look really really good especially matched with that that music um but then you get a pair of um asian movies uh east asian movies uh eat drink man woman which has oh. so many amazing dishes and yeah. the preparation the detail the preparation is amazing it's fantastic the spare ribs the dumplings the duck oh yeah uh, and then you got tampopo 
with all those uh, the shots of the ramen that they're making. Fantastic. I want to talk about Tempopo because I have not seen Tempopo. It has been on my list forever. I know it has foodie connections because it's been one of these things that Tiff Lightbox will often mention when they do like a food series or that kind of thing. And, and, and as I really don't know much about it. So tell me and tell our listeners about Tampopo. Uh, unfortunately, you're kind of straining my memory because it's been a number of years since I've seen it as well. I've got it's a good thing you brought it up then, isn't it? I know. But the, the thing is that it's, it's those food scenes that come to mind when I think of the movie. I also think of its gentleness. I think of some of the very erotic kind of scenes in it too, as a, a couple kind of share an egg yolk back and forth. And it's just, it has that, I don't want to say that Japanese quirkiness, because that, that's such a, a kind of a stereotype in the film world, but it has that that detail of character okay. that is on the border of quirkiness, but still feels real and is interesting and funny and a little bit sad. In so many ways, the plot itself doesn't matter that much. I, I believe it revolves around like a, a ramen restaurant, but it's it's the characters, it's their interactions, and it's the very kind of human aspects that come out of the story it's funny that you mentioned that one as well because along with the fact that that's one of these movies that, that's been on my list forever and i never actually got to see um i was kind of late to the game with ramen in general i it was just it wasn't something that i was fed growing up it wasn't something that anybody ever really took me to um so i didn't actually get interested in and try ramen as a dish until um after a documentary at hot docs um four or five years ago in 2017 there was a documentary called ramen heads which was about like some of the top ramen chefs in japan they actually like get together for this charity event to make like the ultimate ramen that got me interested in how the whole thing is made and how it's presented and how it's a very very um workman's food like they, they they call it like it's a very very work a day um business they call it like a businessman's lunch kind of thing it's not high yeah, end yeah. it's meant to be very very working class so it's funny so not only you know was i very late to tempopo and still am um but i was very late to ramen in general and it's funny you say that a very workmanlike thing it, it does remind me that i think i think the story kind of starts with uh somebody who's traveling by i think it's a, a driver of some kind stops at this ramen noodle shop and decides to stay to help. So it, it is very much that kind of working man's mm. type of meal, that every That's man's cool. meal. That's um, very cool. But if you enjoyed the documentary, um, I think you'll you'll love this film. I think this is kind of right up your alley in so okay. many ways. So, I I, uh, I hope I, I get it. yeah. I hope I get a few minutes and I can watch it in the next uh, next week or two. So if you see that turn up on my letterbox, you'll remember why, uh, right. Mr. Turnbull. This could get interesting. What is a movie that reminds you of home? The, the one that sort of I uh, jumped to mind. Uh, because it's a Quebecois movie, and I, and I grew up on the south shore of Montreal in, in Quebec. Uh, and it's called Wetlands from 2011. Uh, Matacage, I think, is the, the Quebecois, or the, the Quebec name of it, by a filmmaker called uh, Guy Edouin. Uh, I saw it at TIFF, and it's a bit obscure. Uh, it's an excellent film, although not, not a happy one. People dealing with you know love lost and people lost and so forth. But the scenery is just so... Um, reminiscent of, of growing up on a South Shore. It's actually in the eastern townships of Quebec, where my brother lives right now. And it's just, you know, these small farms right by the roadside, the grass-covered ditches, that the sound of the bugs is just so very familiar. I, I can almost smell it, you know, because it's in the summer. 
uh, it brings me right back to growing up in Saint Basile Grand, which is the, the small town, the South Shore that I grew up in. So, a couple things: if people are looking up wetlands, please do not get confused with the 2013 German movie of the same name. Very, very different tone. Very different. Uh, <laughs> we're a Canadian podcast. We're a Toronto-based podcast. And anybody who's listening to this from the states, if I still have any American listeners, or anybody who's listening to this from outside of the country, um, Canada is just kind of this one homogenous idea, and yet there's so much regionalism to this country. Um, which comes with its own challenges, of course, but it also comes with its own culture. And I've I've always said that like the best Canadian movies come out of Quebec, like bar none, the absolute best Canadian movies come out of Quebec. It's no small feat that some of our best directorial ex- exports are Quebecois. Um, this is one of those examples where you've got um, a story which could be anywhere like this. You could, probably tell this story on the east coast you could tell the story on the west coast um you could certainly tell in various places around ontario um but you get this extra stripe of culture and personality when everybody is speaking that very specific quebecois version of french that's what you know it works for me that that's mm-hmm. what's evocative for me anyway because i very much grew up uh, around that now, uh, and I find it much easier to understand French spoken that way. I mean, I can still uh, understand a French movie from from Paris, right? Um, I got to listen a little harder, but yeah. the, the joie, the way they speak, is, is you know not easy for me to pick up because I don't sure. I don't speak it very often. Right. And obviously, there's a lot of colloquialisms. Yeah. Uh, but it, it just it 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 fits my ear. My ear okay. just welcomes that sound, right? And it's that sense of place. You get no, I mean. Just before we move on from this, though, because I believe, first of all, you're only the second person to answer this question, and you're the first person to bring it back to Montreal. Um, there are a lot of incredible French-Canadian movies that one could rhyme off, everything from Jesus of Montreal to Barbarian Invasions to Café de Flore, which I know you love. I think we'd probably get 10 or 20 down the list before we got to something like this. So I guess, why this one and not some of the sexier choices? Um, I think it's because of that that more rural setting. I mean, it's not that I grew up on a farm or anything like that, but the, those scenes of like those you know kind of smaller farm based communities and, and and houses right next to the not major highways, but sort of you know uh, provincial roads. Sure, it, it's just so very familiar to me in the South Shore and the parts of the eastern townships that I've been to. I mean, a lot of other Quebecois movies that I've seen, you know, they can be like up in the Gaspé or they're set in Montreal or something. Yeah. Not as many that I've seen kind of are in that South Shore Eastern okay. Townships region. Not to be confused with a quote. This is this. We must make this abundantly clear. Bob Turnbull, what is a random movie line that you use often? Yeah, so I'm going to go back to two of the movies that, that you mentioned. Uh, but I, I do want to say currently that the two quotes that I'm, I use quite a bit are, uh, and they're sort of relevant to the times, are um, you can't reason someone out of something they haven't reasoned themselves into. And I'm trying to contain an outbreak and you're driving the monkey to the airport. Those are <laughs> two of my favorites the last little while. Um, but if, if you're going to just random kind of quotes um, or snippets, uh, it's raising Arizona and airplane. Uh, because <laughs> of course it is. Incredibly funny. And they're, a little off kilter raising Arizona just because of the cadence of the way they speak, you know, that some bitch, you know, things like that. They just come to mind sure. at moments. Right. 
but even little snippets like sometimes it's a hard world for small things. I mean, what a what a wonderful kind of turn of phrase. Yeah. Um, but but airplane and I am serious and don't call me Shirley is got to be the one that comes to mind most often. I hear the word Shirley. It doesn't matter the context. It doesn't matter who's there. <sighs> if I don't say it, you're I'm that thinking, guy. You're yeah, that I'm guy. Scared. I don't right. always say it. I, I know, really but, you know, but you think it moment, is. But I'm thinking. Now that I know that, anytime I hear somebody say that in mixed company, I'm just going to look at you and I'm going to know exactly what you're thinking. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, the Coen brothers are great for that, right? Like the Coen brothers, along with their quotes, along with like their, their movies are endlessly quotable. But along with that, they have a way of bringing color to the throwaway lines. It's, I think it's the way they direct their actors too, right? I mean, it's not just, again, there's quirkiness, but it's consistent and it yeah. really feels like a, like a, like a character, like a fully sure. developed thought out character. You could pick almost any of their movies and you're going to find a whole bunch of those random quotes for sure. Gotcha. I, I love them. I could totally envision you spouting them off all the time. But I, I'm not, like, I'm not really a heavy movie quoter. I can imagine you in, in a meeting, you know, like, le- like that being like one of the little passing thoughts. Yeah, but it's it's not like a like some people they, they can memorize dialogue or they they know all these passages. It's yeah. typically not me. I love dialogue. No. I love yeah. the quote. They don't stick in the head as much. Uh, so it's usually you know those random. Snippets. Gotcha. So there will be two gongs in case anybody wants to bail out either before they hear the answer or after they hear the answer. So be uh, forewarned, Robert Turnbull. What is your all-time favorite twist ending? I gotta go with stories we tell. Okay, why? Because I, I was I was so wrapped in the the story that Sarah Polly and her family were telling about her mother that I didn't catch on to the device they were using in the movie to tell that story. And when it was revealed uh, that it was an actress and not old home movies, I suppose if I go back, it'd be even more obvious. It just, everything fell into place even more. It became much more emotional about how, this is how you see your parents. This is how you you, you might view your past. Um, not always rose-colored, but with a, a, a very interesting sheen on it. And I thought it was such an amazing and wonderful way to bring her mom back to life, right? Recreating these images on film. Um, it's, it's such a wonderful work of art. I mean, it's a documentary, I guess, but it's, it's a wonderful work of art. So a couple things, stories we tell, um, our mutual friend, Corey Atad came on to the show when we were doing the, um, Winchester Chronicles in the height of pandemic and lockdown. And when we had no new movies to talk about, when we went back and talked about old movies, uh, Mr. Atad came by and we had a great conversation about that film as one of the best of the last decade. And he and I were in a rare moment in rare in, in complete agreement. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Especially these days, watch his Twitter. There is um, archival footage in that movie. A lot of it. There is also a lot of it that's completely fabricated and made up just to illustrate the story, but you have, you have already accepted it as genuine. Um, even though the, even though the second time you go back, there's all kinds of clues that it's not yeah. genuine, but you have already taken it as truth. And I see what you're saying, because that is something that plays right into the core of storytelling as a theme, as, as, as the theme that this movie is going for. And 
it cuts right to the core of nonfiction filmmaking um, because this story, you know, we, we talked about this with Corey. It's not 100% true, but it's very, very honest. There is a difference between those two things. And that is where some of the best documentaries make their point is in the honesty of the storytelling. And I think that was ultimately the point that um, Sarah Polly was going for. So I do like this as an answer. Um, I also like it, the fact that you bring up the way we see people. Like I was just talking with, with Lindsay before we came on air. We were watching uh, the Connors, the, the, the sitcom that followed Roseanne. And oh, um, okay. yeah. And, and Darlene was on the screen and it occurred to me that like Dar- Darlene now is, is 46. And when we first saw her on screen in the nineties, she would have been like late teens, early twenties. Right. Okay. But here's the thing. Some scenes were passing and I was like, if my niece or your son saw Darlene, they would see that middle-aged woman. But because we're watching her and we saw her as a young woman, we're burning a few things in that is not information that's right in front of us. So that's, I think that's right there in stories we tell as well. Like she's burnt in information that's not given to us. And she wants to find a way to give us that information for us to burn it in as well. That's a really great answer. Yeah, it's the honesty of her recollections, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think, again, yeah, it's, it's just such a great storytelling device. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob, I do not want you to go anytime soon, but when you gotta go, what movie death would you prefer to be your demise? Yeah, that's not an easy one to, to really think about because I, I don't think about that kind of stuff. If it's going to happen. It's going to happen, whatever. But, uh, you know, the, the, one of the first images that came to mind was, you know, Obi-Wan just calmly putting away his lightsaber and accepting also because, you know, he's sort of, he never really quite left. Right. Right, um, but also uh, Slim Pickens and Doctor Strangelove. I mean, come on, he, <laughs> he, he he went out doing what he loved, and he was so so uh... happy. And you know, instant painless death, so not too shabby. Um, but I think I've settled, and, and it's a little bit more of a painful death, I guess, uh, with Spock in Wrath of Khan. Mm. Because okay. why that? One? And it's not it's not just because he dies courageously, but you know, he sticks with the logical thought of the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one and i i think that's just the way he you know lived his life consistently through to the end uh was great also leonard nimoy i mean come on he never got the props for being a a pretty solid actor uh but also he comes back man he dies and he comes back so if i'm gonna go damn it i want to come back i see i was gonna say like i i think what i like about that one is is you're choosing the scientist's answer that's part of it. Yeah. Yep. You know, so but also, uh, I want to come back. You know? <laughs> I can't yeah, guarantee no. that, man. That's not part of the question, but, um, all right. I, I, I do like that answer. Um, all of those answers actually. Um, I mean, you know, yeah. Slim pickings, you get the ride and then you're, you're done. Yeah. It's, it's not even like you really got to worry about hitting the ground. Well, exactly. All right. That's, that's the way to go. There we go. That's uh, more about Bob. I cannot even fathom writing a ninth round of questions, but, I guess if he's going to come back, that's what's going to happen. We are going to go on to the new slang for episode 273. The new slang for this episode is Belfast right after this.
Belfast is directed and written by Kenneth Branagh. It stars uh, Katrina Balfa, Judy Dench, Jamie Dornan, Kieran Hines, Colin Morgan, and Jude Hill. Belfast is Kenneth Branagh's semi-autobiographical tale of being a young boy in Northern Ireland at the start of The Troubles in 1969. In this film, a young working-class lad named Buddy is Branna Stand-In. As the film begins, he witnesses firsthand a mob of Unionist Protestants try to intimidate and force out the neighborhood Catholics. Not that the young Protestant lad cares all that much or can really comprehend what exactly is going on. For Buddy, life is spent watching films at the picture house, trying to get the attention of the girl he likes, watching his loving parents have tense discussions about their finances and increasingly tense state of their neighborhood and their nation at large. There's a long history in film of watching conflict through a child's point of view. The titles range from Empire of the Sun to Pan's Labyrinth and much, much further back than either one of those. The stories swirl together the innocence and the innocence lost in a beautiful, horrifying, and painterly way. The latest descendant into this bloodline, Belfast, is a movie that feels a teeny bit less A24 and a whole lot more Miramax. It's a movie that plays in bursts of color with long stretches of black and white. So pop quiz hotshot, and it really is hard to think about where you'd start with a movie like this. For you, was Belfast a bright and colorful story or a drab monochrome tale? You always ask these black and white questions, and, and I always end up being somewhere in the middle, in the gray zone. I, I actually prefer that, to be honest. Like I'm, I do realize that I'm giving people a choice these days, and I really want kind of want to stop that. No, I need to. I really need to like get more open ended with my questions. I think that's <laughs> going to be my my resolution going into the new year of podcasting. I, I got I got to land somewhere in the gray zone on this one. Found it fairly drab at times mm. um, for a variety of reasons. Um, so we, we can get into the specifics, but but even you know the the cinematography is is sharp in, in a black and white way, and it looks very lovely in some ways, and so is a lot of the framing. It's too sharp for me, anyway, for what I was expecting, for what I was wanting to see in that recollection. And it's not mine; it's it's Brana's. So who am I to argue? But for me, it just it it, it felt like a film stage play at times. I think occasionally it have two separate characters framed in different ways that, okay, they're on different sides of an argument or so. But there are other times it's like, well, there's no reason for that shot. Looks cool, but there's no right. reason for it. Right. Um, so I, I, it's a real mixed bag for me on this one, to be honest. Yeah, it's funny. So when we set up these episodes, when I set up these episodes, um, I'd say far more often than not, like at least 90% of the time, I don't know what I'm getting into. I choose a movie. It has interesting earmarks around it, or it's getting good conversation going. And then I go watch it. And after it's planned and after I booked a guest, that's when I got to sit down and talk about it. And I find out that, holy crap, we both like really, really love it. Or holy crap, we both really hate it. And I don't know why I just chose that. And this is one of those occasions. I don't think I probably would have given this movie much thought had it not won the People's Choice Award at TIFF. But once right. it did, it's like, okay, well, now I'm going to make a trip. If it hadn't been for the People's Choice Award, I would have wandered right on past it. And I would have been okay with that. This is a black and white movie. This is a movie that is meant to stir the nostalgia of people of a certain age or people from a particular background that is not trying near as hard as a lot of those other movies of this kind of sort. Like we know people who love to throw stones at Jojo rabbit, 
for instance. That movie comes in with a lot more to say. That movie comes in with a much, much more unique approach to its story of innocence lost and and war through a child's eyes. Multiple children in that one, because you have the the young Jewish girl played by Thomasin McKenzie. This movie is not that. This movie is a book I've read before, a movie I've seen before, a story I've seen before. And whether it's in black and white or color, it's very, very cookie cutter. I I love black and white film, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I I love a lot, and I know you do too, but a lot of that is because of the texture of it sometimes. And, And whether it's sharp contrast or that whole gray palette, this one felt flat to me uh, in many ways. And this isn't a stage, but it, it, it's, it felt too small for me. And having said that, I know that that's part of the point. It's a child's recollection. Your world is your neighborhood. So that's fair. Uh, and, you know, the neighborhood, you see the same stores over and over again. You know, it, their street is the street where all the tanks go. Their street is where the blockades are. Their street is where the riot happens. It's like, Man, everything happens on this kid's street. Right. But when you're a kid, I guess that's that's kind of how you, you see it, right? Yeah. Um, that's where the stuff happened. That's your world. But as a film, it it um it doesn't open up. It didn't really lead me to feel the emotion of the people there, of the situation, or even bring my own recollections into it. There there's a few moments, by the way. I mean there, there are some good things in the movie. Um but the cookie cutter aspect even goes, and I'm bouncing around a bit here. To the music mm. um it, it's shock a block full of van morrison and forgetting for the moment that he's a putz uh of late um the music is it's too on the nose not just because he's irish but sorry for the term but that, that's sort of blandish adult contemporary pop not yeah. that all adult contemporary pop is bland but it's that kind of bland kind of pop that you know i think does a disservice to the movie it, it brings it down even jackie wilson said which is one of his better songs from i think 60s early 70s it's too on the nose in that instance and that harms the movie for me and and i you know like you music in a movie is really important so let's you know let, let's go to let's go to van morrison as, as a device in this movie that is one of my issues with the film is it feels less like a story and less like a film and more a series of devices in its actual storytelling and that really chafes me if this film were in color i might have a very different opinion of it if this film used different music i might have a very different opinion of it if this film had a little bit more darkness um to go along with all of this light i might have a very different opinion of it but beginning with the soundtrack since that's where we choose to start van morrison is a is a musician that's been around now for 50 years there in the neighborhood of of a career and has a lot of records to choose from you don't necessarily need to play the hits. Kenneth Branagh and this this young boy in this movie, they would have come from an age where you didn't skip over songs. You know, come with me, children, to a time where you couldn't just play the singles with a few taps. You had to listen to track four on side one that kind of sucked because track five is a banger. Those middle pieces, you end up growing an affinity for those. It's kind of like earlier when we were saying like the lines, not a quote, but a line that you gravitate towards. You find that like, track two on astral weeks or track three on tupelo honey it wasn't a single but you like it because dad used to play it or you like it because that girl who used to be your friend used to know the words. if you're going to use van morrison it's like you know what get past the hits and give me those songs that you have an actual connection with because two things one 
I'll believe that this child has a connection with those as well, or his parents, because his parents are very, very musically driven. Mm -hmm. Two, I'll believe that you do. Even if the child doesn't, I'll believe that you have it, that you do. And you know what? You'll probably then end up giving meaning to somebody else because out there, some teenage couple will go see this movie on a date and it'll be their song. Or somebody will hear it and they'll be going through something and it'll be their song. It's funny because we're now we're just like wailing on the soundtrack. We haven't even really talked about the story. How'd the story work for you? It was fine. Um, <laughs> it, it, yeah. That sounds like such a condescending way to describe a movie, right? That That's sort of damning with faint praise right. kind of thing. And it's not meant to be condescending. I mean, this is a personal film for Brana, uh, or at least, you know, he, he says it is. So I'm going to take him at his word. It's a story, like you said, we, we've seen before. It's not that you can't tell the story about the troubles in any, you know, different, interesting way. I don't know much about that period of history, to be honest. A personal recollection is an interesting way of tapping into that for a moment in time. A slice in time can sometimes reveal a lot more about the full picture, right? That's sort of, you know, the, the small thing tells a lot about the big thing. I don't feel he did much more with it. He had some good characters. Um, great acting. I don't think they had a lot to really say. No. You know, there's a few standard phrases, a few, excuse me, words of advice and so forth that were fine. I didn't, I didn't feel much emotion in the movie. It was fine. And we can talk about some of the moments that I really do like from it. But as a story, as a film, it was okay. I think if I were to come up with a word to describe this movie the the best, it's that the movie is toothless. Fine is one way of putting it. Fine is me saying, my mom is going to love this movie. My aunts and uncles are going to love this movie. It is going to do just great when it turns up on Crave in one year. I can totally see why Tiff's People's Choice enjoyed this movie. Because it's that kind of story after we've had a year of pretty shitty real life stories. It's a way of looking back on your childhood in a way that blends the unsavory parts with the savory parts. And for all we know, in 30 years, we're going to get this kind of movie about what we just went through. I think it's unfair for a movie like this to take a toothless approach. I think that... This child going through this, or another child somewhere in the world going through something similar, but they had more emotional molding and emotional shaping from what they saw and what they experienced than what this movie lays out. This movie lays out some of the common beats that every child goes through. Having a crush on the little girl, uh, having a grandparent who's kind of a surrogate you know, third, fourth, fifth parent at the time, whatever it happens to be, you know, getting into mischief because you don't really know what you're doing, that kind of thing. That's all, that, that's a lot of our childhoods. But this movie also has in it a child who is witness to history. It's represented in a pretty harmless way. And I think that does that child and children like him a disservice. I didn't learn much of anything about the trouble forget about the troubles for half a minute just think about the idea of a child watching secular division within his neighborhood right a child learning that mary and patrick next door are bad because they are different like this is a very harsh lesson for a child to learn they won't comprehend it because hey it makes no sense putting the child in that position it's skirted 
in this in this film it's 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 barely touched and it's touched upon in some very very facile ways and i think that does the whole thing a disservice because a children understand more than we give them credit for and b any child that's going through this now you're still not giving them the cribs notes on what's going on not only did i not learn much about the troubles i don't think i i um felt the film talked even about that universal experience of that, uh, whether it's secular kind of division or, yeah. or, or, or that, you know, that universal theme of those people are different than you. Yeah. Again, you know, there's a way of taking the specific and making it more universal. And I, I don't think he managed that in this film. No. Uh, maybe he wasn't going for that because it's a personal film, but I think the better personal films do manage to at least appeal or at least pull you into that broader kind of premise or, or, or theme and i don't think this was very successful in doing that no now i mean you know since you brought it up let's turn to that uh, john oliver once said that to call this 20 some odd year conflict that was basically a, a you know a, an entire skirmish in civil strife and terrorism to pleasantly call it the troubles, the troubles. is is such a british thing to do it's it's a very convoluted story that has roots that go back to the beginning of the last century uh, that this movie doesn't really want to touch. And I think this as a representation of the troubles is going to get lumped in with a lot of other movies. And I don't know that this movie earns that spot. The one thing I was sort of wrestling with is that this is definitely a movie from a child's point of view. Yes. So a lot of the shortcomings that, that I personally see in this movie, I take a pause and go, well, maybe he meant to do that because it is a child's point of view. What does the child know about the troubles? He's not going to have any you know, insight into it. But it's still a movie. It's still a film that is going out to a broader audience. And not only do you need to hopefully keep them entertained, you are telling a story to them, maybe from a child's point of view, but you've got the, the medium of film. Yeah. What more can you do with that to not only give that childlike wonder or that child's vision of something, but also, hey, I'm going to drop a few knowledge bombs with you, or I'm going to bring in a theme, or I'm going to do something that's going to raise it a little bit above just a very simple, here's what I remember. I don't think this did that. I, uh, I, I am hoping we get to some of the good stuff in a bit. But, <laughs> But, but I keep coming back. Was there any? <laughs> There's too much that happens away from the child for it to be strictly from the child's point of view. You know, like there's con there's whole conversations that happen with the loyalist and with the father to, to bring him on board. And that is never fully really spelled out aside from the fact that he's a Protestant and they're Protestants. Why him? You know, is he is he a civic leader? Is he influential? He he never seems to be. He's always coming in and out of Belfast. He you know he's, he spends half the time out of town. Why him? Why are they leaning so hard on him to pick a side and not somebody else? And why is that even part of this story? The movie doesn't explore this. See, so that's one example of where you could say it's because it's the boy's point of view. You look at your father, but it happens. Course, with, but it happens without the boy there. No, but that's the thing. It happens without the that's boy That's what there. it's going to come back to. Exactly. That's what it's going to come back to, is that the film is not consistent in its yeah. point of view. Yeah. You know, if you're going to make it all about a child's point of view, cool. Many great movies have been done that way. I think Fanny and Alexander, uh, to go back to one of my previous movies, 
is one like that. So we've been wailing on this movie and you just mentioned like some of the good things about this. What were for you some of the things that this movie does well? Well, I mean, there are moments that that child's perspective comes alive a bit. Um, you know, one that jumps out is the, the late in the film um, uh, musical number, I guess you could say, at the wake. Uh, there, there's a, a moment where there's a wake in the movie and, you know, his father is singing on stage and his mother's dancing. And my first thought is, okay, that's pretty cheesy. Of course, his father sings and the band has sunglasses and his mother is the center of attention dancing. But if you're a kid, that's probably how you see it. Right. And I think that scene was effective from that point of view. Uh, also, these Jamie Doran and Katrina Balfour are really not only pleasant to look at, but they're really, I thought, good in their their roles. Oh, absolutely! I like that know, was one of those moments know, where, yeah, that was one of those moments where I'm like, I want a movie about these people and just get the damn kid out of the way. You know, like, can I just watch a movie about this couple and their problems because yeah, or, they are wonderful together? Or keep the kid in there, but no, that no, no, or keep the child in there and keep that childlike wonder in the movie. And there, there wasn't enough of that. I, I wanted either more of that sure. or like Ethan, more of that relationship because I think, you know, they, they hint at some more um, complex parts of the relationship, right. Where they don't agree on a whole bunch of different stuff and it, you know, works out in the end, I guess, yeah. or having the child like perspective and have them on a pedestal all the time, but, but have that magical realism. Kind of thing and that wasn't a consistent point of view so that was nice and then you're back to oh okay we're in the fine movie again all right i think the one thing i did appreciate is the amount of time this movie put towards do we stay or do we go um, and the movie is dedicated to those who left and to those who stayed. It's a challenging question because it's the kind of thing that with hindsight everybody just looks at a thing and says why didn't you just leave you know, when the tanks started rolling down your street, why didn't you just go? When the storm started lashing at the shore, why didn't you pack up and go? It seems that simple from a distance. You know, we've seen that lately. Like when, when, a, when a crisis grips a city, why don't you leave the city? The reality that this movie wants to point out is it's never as simple as pack the kids were going especially when you have generational roots in one place, be it a neighborhood, a city, a country, you name it. It takes a lot to say we're starting over. It doesn't matter if you're starting over somewhere where you even speak the language to say nothing of the fact that there are so many people in the world who have to start over somewhere we don't speak the language. And even to that end, this is a movie where even maybe we should go is still from a position of privilege because there's a lot of the world where they don't even have that choice and they got a bolt, right? And then they run into a whole other problem. But this movie, it really wants to consider the question of do we stay or do we go? Both within the couple themselves and when they start to bring the children into the conversation, when they bring their parents into the conversation, scene to scene to scene, it seems to be like screaming at them Go for the love of God, go. But they can't bring themselves to leave because it's home. And you know, the same way you were talking about Montreal earlier on in the show, these people will talk about Belfast for the rest of their life. This one little street where everything seemed to happen. I think the movie does do that well. The movie does really underscore how hard it is, as meager as your life may be, 
to pack it up and leave. Yeah, I, I think that's actually a really, really good point, Ryan. I mean, uh, uh, I think as the theme of the movie, that's a that's a great one. It's it's got to be a very difficult question. I, I've never had to really look at it personally in that kind of manner, where yeah. I've had to make that kind of really difficult choice. Yeah, that's got to be uh, that's got to be very, very hard. I I don't think I ever felt it to that emotional level in this movie, and maybe that's that's me. I, maybe I missed the emotion in the movie in regards to that. I know they they touched on it here and there, but it never came across as the the struggle that I think he intended it to feel like. Uh, I think it's a great theme to work on. I think the movie did drop it very well in a few places. Yeah, but at the end, it's kind of like, well, of course, yeah, you, you're gonna go with that answer. Yeah. Um, so I, I wrestle with that too because I, I love the fact that he's using that as a central aspect of the film, um, but I, 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 I don't think it's that's not going to be my takeaway from the movie. No. Because no. when you when you just raise that right now and say, oh yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great thing to talk about, but I didn't put it down in any of my notes. No. And I mean, I've got yeah, I've got notes for the show, and I didn't even put it down in that. Yeah. So. And I just I wrote, and I just wrote them forty minutes ago. <laughs> Maybe that says more about you and I. I don't know. Maybe, but um, it. I guess it didn't. It didn't resonate or sit with me as well. What what I one of the things I did like, um, and in some ways it's a very obvious kind of device to use was was those flashes of color. You know, whether it's when he's watching a movie like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which you know, I remember seeing as well, uh, or even watching a stage play of I think it was a Christmas Carol. And that being in color, suddenly, boom, you know, that that is opening up his world. He's seeing colors on stage or in the movie. So great. I, we, I, I like that, that that's, you know, part of Brown's childhood, right? That that resonated when, with him when he, when he was a kid. And that's kind of, I, I think it's kind of neat, you know, as, you know, film fans and stuff like that, we can appreciate that. I'm, I'm good with that. I'm fine with that. But I just, I, I wanted a bit more of that. I wanted more of that kind of consistent vision in the movie. I think that would have made for a much more interesting film. So I, I wanted more of that either magical realism of, of that actual, you know, uh, tangible, I remember this thing and I'm attaching to my recollections, you know, almost kind of like the stories we tell when we're, when we're talking about that, right? I wanted more of that. This movie seems to want to play both sides. It wants to be heavy when it wants to be and it wants to be childlike and whimsical when it wants to be and you really it's it's giving me it gave me a lot of whiplash those scene those drops of color into this movie felt like a cheat they're not in a pleasantville or even in a schindler's list kind of way and i think this podcast is setting a record for the most amount of other movies i bring up in the in the course of a review and they took me out Actually, I, I, you know, it's funny because I didn't like the use of black and white in this film. Like you mentioned it looking very, very flat. I was actually distracted because I thought to myself, the black and white in this movie is a gimmick. It's doing nothing for the storytelling. This was not a black and white era of history. This was a color era of history. And you are trying to add gravitas to your movie by presenting it in black and white. And you're not even presenting it in black and white in a very, very well way. You know, one of my questions earlier, what is your favorite black and white movie? I don't expect this to be Night of the Hunter, but I need it to be a little bit better than what it was because what it was was a very poorly shot black and white movie. Um, If you're going to be a poorly shot black and white movie, at least commit to that. And don't all of a sudden, you know, jerk me back into reality with this color. I like those moments because it's kind of like, oh, good. You're, you're no, trying something different now. No, good. Maybe no, you're going to go down that road. 
it's but, a bit. It's, it's, right. it's, he's not trying something. It's, just, it's, it's, he thought it would be cool. Those moments at least kind of, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're doing something, if not different, at least not the same that, you know, the story was using up till now. It's kind of like, oh, okay, you're bringing some of your memories, your, your passions, and, and you're trying a, a bit of a different device to show why and how that child reacted to that. I'm cool. I'm on board with that. Oh, okay, we're back to where we were. You know, we've got the same opinion of the movie in many ways. Uh, in this case, we're just looking at that specific thing. It's like, I saw it. It's kind of like, oh, yay, we're trying something different. You're like, oh, that's a cheat. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, it's you know? it's funny because, I mean, I love black and white films. Like modern black and white films, I really do enjoy them. Everything from The White Ribbon to Nebraska to a movie that I'm going to talk about in, in the other side. I, I, I love black and white photography. It's 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 a passion of mine. It's 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 deep in my bones. You know, when I did study photography, one of the tricks was if you had a picture that was just okay, print it bigger. If you print it up really big, it makes it look really impressive. You know, the, the line was big prints. Don't they make everything look just great? Same idea. You know, you've got a movie that looks kind of boring. Shoot it in black and white. All of a sudden, everybody would be like, oh. And actually, I'd, I'd be curious if this was actually shot in black and white or if it was kind of, you know, shot in, you know, normal and then converted afterwards. And, and I don't know. I'm not. No, it's well. I mean, on your zone, but no, it's it's digital photography. So everything is shot in color and then rendered in black and white. Like there's there's no there's no film anymore. I mean, there is film knocking around, but this was not shot on film. Like this is far too sharp to and be film. And that's possibly part of it is that. And again, I'm not. I shouldn't even be talking about this because I don't know the technical side of things. No, but I do. That's. I'm happy to talk about it. I I do know the technical side. Yeah, you can. So the, the cinematography here. I mean, I I didn't get that. Again, like you said, it doesn't have to be Night of the Hunter, but a lot of, many, most of the black and white films from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and, and so forth, are shot specifically to use the lighting in a way that renders that black and, black and white scenery into either a myriad of grays or very sharp contrast for very specific reasons. And this felt... Like I said, flat. Yeah. Anybody who complained about the black and white photography in Mank owes that movie a huge apology because this movie looks way worse than that movie's worst scene. There's a handful of moments in this movie that look really good. Um, there's, you know, there's some little throwaway moments when it's raining. Certainly that dance sequence that you were talking about earlier looks fabulous. Mm-hmm. Like everybody looks mm-hmm. just so cool and sexy. But there are just so many moments that seem so high key and flat and just altogether wrong that would probably have looked great in color you would have had this beautiful tonality this really really washed out workmanlike old photograph tonality to these people and their rooms and their lives and their streets but to strip all of that very modest working class color from this movie and go to black and white and then not executed on a technical level makes me even more annoyed at this movie going going back to a, a, another positive aspect sure i do want to call out uh kieran hines who is just <laughs> so good in anything i've ever seen him in uh and is equally as good here um he's i don't there he just there's something about him that brings a sense of empathy across that i just immediately feel for him no matter what his character is even if he's playing a really bad person, and here he's playing a, you know, a lovable kind of grandfather kind of guy, um, I, there's something about his screen presence that I just absolutely love. And Jude Hill, the, the young boy, I thought was really good. He's not, mm-hmm. you know, he's not, uh, 
cloying. He's not overly cutesy. He reminds me a little bit maybe of Kess. A little bit of, uh, if you've ever seen like the, the early snippets from uh, the, the Up series, you know, from like, yeah, Kess, Seven yeah, Up, or I don't yeah. know what it was called Seven Up at the time. There's that one privileged boy that usually kind of is on some of those early posters. It's like, oh, he looks like that kid. Right. And both of those, I couldn't help but think, I need grain in the film. I, or I need <laughs> that, like you said, that washed out kind of color. That's what I was either wanting or expecting, and it just felt too clean and flat. So you're skipping ahead because my souvenir for this movie was actually going to be Kieran Hines and Judy Dench. Uh, I I would happily watch a short film, an epic film, a mini series about their relationship as it stands when we meet them in 1969. Every single scene that features them is an absolute lift to this whole movie. I wanted the whole movie to be about them because whether they're talking to Buddy or they're talking to each other or they're talking to their son or their daughter-in-law, it could just be that it's two classic actors doing what they do best. I was wrapped. I loved it so much. There was so much warmth in their scenes. There was so much bittersweetness. Judy Dench, especially as the matriarch of this family, uh, as as uh, Granny, um, she's the one who really understands this, right? She is the one who is trying to convince her son, go. I know what's happening. I can see it. I know why this conflict is in your brain. You need to leave because there is nothing for you here. I will miss you, but I will be okay. Please go. It will make me happier if you go. Kieran Hines as the grandfather, giving all his grandfatherly wisdom in a very, very gentle way, whether it's how to pass the math test by cheating your <laughs> penmanship, uh, but your kids can't do that anymore, or how to get the girl's attention. They're perfect. They are by far the best thing about this movie. I wish I had a whole movie just about them. I, I think some of the wisdom they dispense is a little too you know wise old grandparent but that's what that's what grandparents do right like more more often than uh, not grandparents just give it to you simply yeah but it's you know again it's a little bit on the nose but i i can't fault either i mean judy dench is always judy dench and she's great because she's judy dench yeah you know just even the way she uh she does the one reading of you know there's no road to shangri-la from belfast is is wonderful and mm-hmm. it, it is one of actually for me one of the more emotional moments of the movie where it's kind of like i felt that mm-hmm. i could feel her thinking that you know that uh they're talking about the lost horizon and, and and so forth so there's the movie reference and then boom she settles into this you know there's no road to shangla from here yeah oh oh geez grandma you just dropped that truth bomb on me yeah holy crap um yeah, yeah so I, i'd love to see more of that and even like you're saying there's a you know the the, the relationship between the boy and the girl it, it was, you know, nothing necessarily brand new, but it was, I thought it was done nicely. It was kind of sweet. And mm-hmm. I wanted to see a bit more of that. I, yeah. You know, we've all seen the little boy and little girl and the coming of age kind of thing. But there, there was something where, you know, she didn't behave in the standard kind of little standoffish thing. She was the smart girl. She was kind of like this very sweet little girl. And I was like, oh, that would have been nice to pursue that more. Yeah. You know, I, I like getting those uh, uh, smaller details into movies, Th- those Again, not quirks of character, but the full characteristics. And I thought there could have been more there. Like, oh, that, that girl seems to be a little bit more interesting than the standard stereotype. 
you know, it'd be as, you see just a little bit of the view from her house with her. I think when her mom was combing her hair, where I was like, oh, I think there's more to tell there. Sure. And and there wasn't. Yeah. Um. So I I, I wanted more of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean that could that would be my pull quote from this movie if, if they would let me put one on on the poster. You know, Ryan McNeil says it left me wanting. Um, well, I've just showed my hand. We end every matinee cast with a souvenir or something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from this movie and keep, you would. Mine would be the relationship of Heinz and Dench, um, them together, them separately. Um, that would be my souvenir. I want more of them. Bob Turnbull, though, what would be your souvenir from Kenneth Branagh's Belfast? I usually uh, usually punt this question. I I I usually don't answer it properly. Yeah, you I, tell I me like away, six like, things. Yeah, yeah, because you, because you want like that that souvenir that thing. In this case, I think I've got a good one. Oh, before I get to it, what the hell is up with seating positions in a small child small child's classroom that are dependent on their most recent class? Market? You know what? I like I like that. I like that. You're you're a dim kid. You sit your ass at the back. <laughs> consequences as for your detail, actions man you know as a detail that happened and i assume it did uh, that's a great thing to put in a movie but holy crap um that's in, in my bad in my opinion bad teaching moments uh, but <laughs> but the souvenir i'll take away is I, I think it's early in the movie that the uh oh maybe someone to know um the boy lying on the living room i think carpet with a new matchbox toy car deciding where he's going to put it in his matchbox case this is true and we're, we're getting back to what i was talking before that is so damn evocative for me because i had matchbox cars when i was a little kid i had a case if not quite like that because i'm not that that old not that far from that yeah. with the little kind of racks the little sort of uh, uh um baskets that you had to take out to put the cars in uh and just that the joy of just lying on your carpet playing with your cars that again a nice little detail moment of childhood that I really wanted so much more of in this movie and just never quite got. Along with all the trips they take to the cinema, there's a, there's a scene where earlier on you brought up Star Trek. There's a scene where they're sitting in the living room and they're watching yeah. Star Trek on TV. And you know what? I, that I love. Dropping in High Noon and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and... Uh, you know what the 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 Raquel Welch uh, BC movie. Um, yeah, when, yeah, I was like, okay, I guess we're doing this. But them at home watching Star Trek or watching the news, I'm like, this feels real. This feels natural. This matches the story. Those trips to the cinema, although I believe that they did them, um, felt a little too forced. Um, we could be, I could be yelling about this movie forever. Um, festival goggles is a thing. That's all I'll say to that respect. We, we end by rating these movies on a scale of one to four stars. Bob Turnbull, Kenneth Branagh's Belfast. What are you giving this? I don't like ratings, but I, I only do it for you, right? Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm going to give you a range because I'm not sure. Two to 2.5. All right. I'm on a two. I didn't like this movie. Okay. As I said, I see how my parents will. I see how my grandparents will. I see how people who just want to go and escape for 100 minutes will. I did not care for it. And hey, maybe you're one of those people who loved it. Let me know why. I'd love to know. Uh, Ryan at the matinee.ca. Um, or maybe you hated it even more than I did. Maybe you think it's one of the worst things ever made. Um, I'll, I'll hear that too. Um, Twitter, I'm matinee underscore CA, facebook.com slash dark matinee. What did you think of Kenneth Branagh's Belfast? We are going to take a very quick break here flip the record over to play some other movies i'm gonna go ahead and say better movies come on back right after this
We are back. I'm Ryan McNeil. He is Robert Turnbull. His friends call him Bob. I call him Robert. It's Matt Nakecast 273. You're funny. I try. We've been talking about Belfast. Make of that movie what you will. It's the other side. It's the point of the show where we talk about other movies. Some say better movies. uh, Films that have something in common with our main um, title of review. Um, Bob has three choices. I have two choices. So um, Bob will lead us off and close us out. Uh, because he is a rare and precious snowflake. You know, I actually really feel like the conservative faction of the world ripped me off because I loved saying that so much about about you and now i can't do it without that I, bad I know. It's, it's, my mouth. Now, yeah it? it's been a while since i've heard uh, since i've heard you say that there's a good reason for it please but, get us started I kind of it. So, so thank you for bringing it uh, back in our in our lexicon anyway. you're most welcome get us started what is a film that you think would make a good other side to belfast uh, the, the first one i thought of was uh was local hero actually and, and it's mainly because it's kind of some of what i wanted more in belfast the, that gentle view of a place, that sense of place, um, the feel of the surroundings, and and the sort of the strange and interesting characters. Again, not about quirks, but just about the those little individual aspects of a full character. And I wanted more of that. I wanted that, I guess, a little bit more of that, not just realistic feeling, but just kind of like those real full-blown characters. You are talking about the 1983 movie directed by Bill Forsyth? Absolutely. Scottish comedy? Okay. Uh, uh, Congratulations. I actually have never seen this movie. Tell people about this film. Oh, it's so good. Oh, it's wonderful. Um, It's, it's, it's I guess, a gentle story of, uh, I guess it's a a Texas oil uh, guy, um, Burt Lancaster, I believe, who sends a minion over to Scotland to suss out this town and basically pay them off so that they can get the the oil drilling rights and then goes over and it's not quite that simple because the villagers are maybe a little bit smarter than they are hmm. and maybe they actually are trying to boost the price and maybe they're trying to do all sorts of things but it, it's it just gives you such a wonderful sense of the place of a scottish town and maybe it's exaggerated in so many ways but uh, again it's using exaggeration to really kind of bring home these characters and what it must be like to be in that village um i love it such a great movie. I, I love kind of coming across movies like these that were much more of a touchstone a generation ago, you know, because we're going to find that, that happens going forward. We're going to find that there are films that were bigger in the moment than they seem to be. And I kind of feel like actually Belfast is going to be one of those movies that, that, you know, people are talking about like crazy for a few years and then just fades into memory. Like, I mean, local hero, it was nominated for a whole bunch of BAFTAs, um, including best film. It's, it's a movie where the, the, the music was by Mark Knopfler. Uh, and, and as you said, it's got this cast that goes and goes and goes. It, and yet here we are now. And I bet you five bucks. If you ask the table of 20 people who here has seen local hero, you might get like two or three hands. Um, oh, that's, that's yeah, I, I'm, I'm I'm really interested in tracking this down. Like it seems really interesting. It seems like you're right. It would make a fantastic pairing in so many ways. Um, That's a great choice to start us off. My first choice to start us off is not nearly as elegant a pairing. So congratulations. Um, And my movie to start us off is actually a movie that I just saw last night. And it might seem like a strange pairing, but bear with me. So my choice is a film from this year uh, directed by Sean Hedder. 
Um, and, it, and anybody who has Apple TV for their Ted Lasso enjoyment, you have this film uh, right there in your device. Um, I went with a film called Coda, which uh, did really, really well at Sundance and uh, is about Coda stands for Child of Deaf Adults. And it's about this family in New England. It's a fishing family where their daughter can hear, but the husband, wife, and their older son are all hearing impaired. This seems like a very, very strange pairing. But here's my point. Both Coda and Belfast are not trying to change the world. Neither one of these are what you would call necessarily prestige pictures. They are just in there to tell a sweet story that has some important messaging in it and some resonance and get out. You know, they're in there for a hundred minutes, affect the audience, send them home with, with something to chew on and talk about on the drive and be done with it. Coda does it in a very modern, we were talking off mic about neon studios. I mentioned earlier, you know, a 24 is a studio. It does it in a very, very modern independent film way. Whereas Belfast, if I did not know better, I would swear to God that Belfast is an early aughts, late 90s, Miramax kind of way. I want more movies like Coda. I want more movies where there is this story of a child-parent dynamic or a child-situational dynamic, and it handles it in a modern sensibility, even if it is an older story, and tells it in, in, you know, the language of film is constantly evolving. And Coda feels modern, whereas Belfast feels like it's not even not even classic. It just feels old. Yeah, I, I, I liked Coda. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I can get into specifics that, that didn't work perfectly well for me. Sure. And but, I mean, like, but, but, neither one, don't get me wrong, like, Coda's not going to make my year-end top ten. I don't think I could see it on somebody else's year in top 10. I could see Belfast on somebody else's top 10 as well. But I mean, I, like I see the appeal of Coda and same sort of thing. It's harmless. It's a movie that my mother would like and her mother would like on and on and on and on. on. But at the very least, I find the storytelling language and the visual language that I find is better suited in Coda than it is in Belfast. Yeah, I was just going to say that that I agree with your positive points on that film. And it, it kind of gets back to some of the things I mentioned before about there are interesting characters in there. They, you know, they are flawed. They have little, you know, bits about them. Uh, even like the the musical professor who is maybe a little exaggerated <laughs> is still made, I don't know, more human in, mm-hmm. in, in some ways. It's not that the people in Belfast are not human. His more full character even the arc that character has works, I think, so much better and, and, and helps that film in so many ways. I mean, uh, the other... There's, there's some full-blown moments where it's kind of like, oh, you're really reaching for some, some emotion there. But but I'm even okay with that in Coda. But that's... I think it, it tries to earn those honestly. I mean, that and that's the thing, is, is I found... Like, there is a moment in Coda that you can see coming. You know, there is a moment there. There are just there are several moments in that movie where I'm like, this is going to happen before we are done. This is going to happen. And in both of those moments, I was still affected. Meanwhile, in Belfast, you know, we get into the scene where they play the troubles the same way as High Noon or we get into the end of the movie. And I was not really affected and i'm an easy mark especially these days i'm I'm like just shrink wrapped ready to cry at movies 
um, Coda, the other, I mean, the other commonality between them is Coda won um, big awards at Sundance. So as far as the whole festival goggles part goes, Coda at the very least got out of its festival bubble and still transcends enough to succeed. Whereas I think Belfast, when you take it out of its festival bubble, does not. I think you're probably right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No. Good. That's uh, that's a good that's a good pairing. Actually. Man, yeah. you have been locked down for a while. If you're if you're telling me that I'm right, uh, what's your what's we, your we next? Agree way too much. I on know, your man. We need a knockdown dragout fight. At <laughs> what is your next other side? Again, I mentioned it before, Fanny and Alexander, mm. um, because I think it's true to the consistency of the child's point of view, and I mentioned it a little bit before, but. You know, the opening part of that movie is it's kind of overwhelming, happy, wonderful holiday colors. And every room is just stuffed, filled with things and ornaments. And it's just, my goodness, it's it's a, just a feast for your senses. And, you know, at some of the, the turning points in the movie when, you know, he has to move with his mother to, to live with um, a priest, it becomes completely the opposite barren and just you know almost black and white and just oppressive and it's very much exaggerated ends of the spectrum which would likely be a child's point of view and i think it's very consistent throughout that film um i didn't love it the first time i saw it but i saw it at the the three hour cut um and and not trying to be film snobby but uh, a friend of ours mutual friend mark st cyr told me no no you gotta watch the five hour version that's what i I watched no that's what i watched and I watched the five-hour version, and I freaking loved it. Yeah, the whole first and, hour and maybe, of Christmas. And maybe it was just that first hour, that extended part of it. Maybe it was just my mood. I don't know. Uh, but my goodness, it's, it's one of my favorite Bergman films. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and I think it, it's that child's perspective remains pretty darn consistent throughout that five hours. I think that's one of the things that I see in movies like... Um, you know, I mentioned already Empire of the Sun and your Fanny and Alexander and even something like Pan's Labyrinth that I mentioned as well is there is a very, very wide gap between masters, mistresses and pretenders. And Kenneth Branagh, he can per- he can turn in a very serviceable film. I'm not going to sit here and drag the man through the mud at all. There's no point. But I would never go tooth and nail with somebody like you or one of our other, you know, local friends that he is a master. He is a perfectly competent filmmaker. And that is about all when it comes to these kinds of stories of heavy storytelling through the eyes of a child. I think it requires a master's touch. And that's the kind of thing you see in the hands of Bergman. Well, there, there's no doubt. I mean, the, the kids aren't even really that, big a part of the movie or the story yeah but their point of view is yeah and and i think that's that's the difference yeah one hour christmas one hour christmas scene in sweden i want to go to i want to go to sweden for christmas so badly they know how to christmas my god um well my second choice for an other side um is also an international film this one is um not all that old either uh and not all that long this movie i think it's like 90 minutes if i remember correctly it's 88 minutes um out of poland from a few years ago i went with cold war from a few years ago do you remember that movie uh, oh my it was my favorite movie that year oh. i love Love that movie. Fantastic. Um, Pavel uh, Palakowski 
it's a story, uh, you know, same idea. It's a story of ordinary people in extraordinary times during the Cold War. Uh, and it's kind of funny because as I'm talking about this, I swear to God, my phone just lit up as a text from our mutual friend, Andrew Robinson. The text reads, Belfast makes me want to watch Cold War again. Um, is he listening to this podcast? Yeah, I th- you know, he knows how to hack my system. So I'm thinking he did. I talked about black and white photography. This movie is stunning. This movie yeah. is shot within an inch of its life by people who know how to capture black and white tonality. Um, this movie knows how to find the darkness in a story this movie knows how to find the joy in a story you know both of these movies have these elaborate restaurant clubby dance hall sequences to an old song and in both cases they're very very lively but in this case it just hits so much harder because it feels earned it feels like this reprieve whereas the other one is just like i guess we're doing this um you know uh cold war it's a film i feel it didn't like i mean even though it's an oscar nominee not only is it an oscar nominee but it's an oscar nominee for best director right like, yeah, yeah. it's it's this weird thing that we're in this stage of like nine or ten films getting nominated for best picture and usually the best directors get picked out of those nine or ten no 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 this was like film number 12 and pavel palakowski got nominated for best director as well um and yet i still think it's criminally underseen um cold war is an incredible movie it's clearly in so many ways what belfast wants to be the english version of and is not even close it's for it for me it's stupendous i mean i i I felt extraordinarily emotional during that movie not just because of the story but like the music the music in that movie is so good um there's there's one where where a kind of a i guess a local folk tune is sung near the beginning and then later in the movie it's kind of recontextualizes a jazz song Mm -hmm. and it's 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 so freaking good you know rock around the clock is used and you're like oh okay well that's a standard oh yeah but it's used so so well that that club scene is tremendous the camera work the acting the uh, i let's have a podcast about this movie i saw it at tiff and i was it was it bowled me over loved it yeah and and one of the best endings in a film yeah, yeah, yeah. that I had yeah. seen in a long, long time. One of the most unforgettable, affecting endings of a film that I've seen in a so, so, so long. Um, talk, talk about taking the specific, a story about his parents and making it, if not universal, at least something that many people can find the feeling in. Yep. you know it, it's bringing the more of that universal touch to it yeah anybody I, I, I guess our, our you know what we're doing here on the other side is is finding movies that are just going to make belfast feel bad <laughs> hey man that's I, I it's not always about sunshine and rainbows on this show and anybody by the way um if, if you're in canada if you have amazon prime um this was actually released through amazon studios so it's on oh, amazon yeah. prime so if you if you want to rewatch cold war that's where to find it um and and i i cannot recommend it highly enough um Bob, you've got one more movie to, to take us home and, and get us out of this. What do you got? I went with maybe a, another kind of obvious one, but I was kind of leaning into the whole childhood memory, childhood perspective thing. Um, I chose a Christmas story. 
And <laughs> I know it's a movie that, that, that some people, you know, don't even like, or it's, they've seen it too often or on every year and blah, blah, blah. Okay. That, that, that's fine. I, I'm, I, I'm okay with that. I, I get why maybe a lot of people are tired with it. It is just so evocative of a sense of place. Um, the, the, the neighborhood, the schoolyard, uh, you know, uh, Higby's, you know, just all, all those things just really give you a real good sense of the time and the place that he grew up in. Um, and the characters, the little side characters, the, the people that have maybe 10 seconds of screen time, you know, the delivery dude, he's, I think, on screen for maybe 10 seconds. It's kind of like, boom, like, I, I know this guy, I can see this guy. And that movie does that so well with the, you know, the school teacher. And a whole bunch of other kind of characters, even some of the, of the, the kids in this class that don't even speak. <laughs> I think I get more of a character out of them than, than so many movies. And, th and then, you know, th there's a real personal connection with it uh, for me. I mean, my, my son wants to watch it every single year. I think we've done it for like 15, 16 years in a row now. We're going to do it again this year. Um, and we used to do it with, with, with uh, my mom and dad. My mom's still on. My dad passed away a few years ago. Uh, but the father in this movie, the grumpy father who swears his head off. Not really swears, but sounds like he's swearing, you know, whenever he, he interacts with the furnace. My dad would just laugh so hard during that and shake the whole house because he did the same thing. <laughs> he would not quite swear, but you were sure he was actually swearing. It sounded like he was swearing. So again, it's that very specific kind of elements that were in that story that feel more universal that people can find those kind of connections and i really think a christmas story does that wonderfully well even though it was set decades and decades ago you know almost when my dad would have been a little boy or, or you know a little bit after that of course um it, it still is something that i can almost relate directly to and that my son can relate directly to and i will always love it for that even though it's a little bit of a bittersweet connection for me now it's funny i I have this weird relationship with this movie because I didn't like it for quite some time. I didn't really get it for quite some time. Um, and then right around the time that I was like really getting into my dislike for the movie um, was around the time that uh, the Turner networks started showing it like 24 hours over Christmas day, you know, which if you want, if you want me to stop liking something, just run it for me over and over and over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right. any any you know anything really like if you, if you show me almost famous 12 times in a row i'm going to come away with a very different impression i i care about this movie a lot more now um it reminds me um of home even though it's set in a time um much much further in the past than my youth um it is filmed in my city and has some little hallmarks that i remember whether it's the the, the, the hudson's bay windows or seeing streetcars go by or those those um christmas tree lots that like are, are you know the corner of a supermarket like those kinds of things yeah. that i i always remember from my youth what i like about it most is it's not trying too hard and one of the things with belfast is it feels like it really wants to be important you know it really feels like it wants to aim to be one of those movies that we're talking about at the end of the year christmas story doesn't really feel like it was trying to create a modern christmas classic i mean it's in the library of congress now i promise you when this thing was named in 1983 they weren't thinking library of congress here we come you know they didn't think that they were out there to remake it's a wonderful life for or scrooge and get added to the canon and because of that they did 
You know, like I, I, I respect that in a movie when they're just out to tell a story, enlighten everybody for a few hours, and then just everybody goes home happy. And, you know, oddly enough, done by the same director that did Black Christmas and Porky's. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, go for it. I mean, I like that. Like, I, it's same thing. Like, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and call Bob Clark a, a virtuoso in the in the way of Bergman or Spielberg or Del Toro or any of those. I also don't think he's necessarily Kenneth Branagh for that matter. Like, you know, he's he's just he's a guy. He did a job. He made some great movies and, and, and home he went. Right. It's got a lot to say about, you know, memory. Uh, it's got a lot to say about you know, the relationship between parents and children and, and you know, we, we don't realize that like when we're kids, we don't realize that Christmas is like a stressful time of year for our parents. So, so there's that in there as well. Like, you know, what, what the child experiences out of something and what the grownups are experiencing out of something. Uh, there's a lot of that going on in this movie. Every character feels like a character, a full character. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, one one minor little thing in Belfast is that his older brother in the movie is there. I forgot. Like, there is one. I totally there forgot he had an older brother. Scene. To be entirely honest, yeah, there is one pretty good scene between the older brother and the father where there's this implication of like, oh, you've been delivering packages for a while, and that's like, oh, again, I want a little bit more of that. Mm-hmm. But here, you know, even some of the characters that don't even speak, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, I get, it. I get who that character is. Yeah. Um, I, it's the actors. It's how the director tells the actors to act. It's how the script is written. Um, I love this movie. Yeah. That's no, it's a wonderful movie. Um, I love that we're getting into the time of year where I'm going to play it again. Uh, it's a really great pairing, a very out of the box pairing aside from me taking some of the easy answers. Well done, Bob. You have certainly brought the goods in your eighth time. I, I, I think, you know, you're finally, finally getting the hang of this, uh, whole, not an cast racket. It, 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 it took a few times to get you here, but you, you, you showed up in the end. So I do thank you for that. You mean you, you think there, I've got a career in this? Oh, there, there's money in this? There's, <laughs> there we go. That is episode 273 of the Matinee Cast. I am so thankful that Bob Turnbull was able to come by. Come on back on Monday, December 6th for episode 274. I think we are going to discuss the power of the dog. Bob, these days, he's not. you're not even really on the Twitter that much either. What are you doing now? I'm I'm looking at the Twitter. Right. Um, I don't know social media. I, I'm I've taken a break for a while. I, every time I think about reinteracting with it, I reconsider <laughs> for a variety of reasons. I, either it's a, a series of tweets or whatever. I, I um, think I think your mind is in the right place. I, I do want to interact with many of the people out there, though. So I I, I got to figure that out because I miss a lot of those folks because of the pandemic, yeah. uh, both the local ones and even just interacting you know, on Twitter with other what people. What we will so say is anybody that. listening to this who hasn't heard from Bob in a while, drop him a line. He would love to hear from you. Oh man, please do. There we go. My site is matinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to the matinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them in all the old familiar places, Google, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, Apple. You can also find them some newer places, TuneIn, Radio Public, CastBox, Podchaser. Everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Again, if for any reason you are using a podcast platform that my show is not on, let me know. I'll put it there. It's super easy. Feedback on Belfast can be left in the comment section of the site or on any of the movies we talked today. Um, comment section of the site, you can email me, ryan at the matinee.ca. On Twitter, I am matinee underscore ca. And there's always Facebook, facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts, Bob? I was just really happy to be back in a theater, actually. It was my first movie-going experience since 
January 2020. Played that card on Belfast? Oh, boy. You know what? Regardless, I was happy to be back there. There was only six other people in the theater. That made me feel I, better. I mean, if nothing else, I'm happy that you you did it at my request. I'm, I'm really honored there that I was go. able to get you back out there. Um, again, my thanks to your wife for uh, sparing you on her birthday. Uh, I, 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 I owe her a drink. At Somehow least. she managed for a couple hours to do without me. It's amazing. <laughs> go figure. For Bob, I am Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee.